Like Amy said, my work puts me in proximity to pain on a regular basis. Um, and if you've been here the last few weeks, you've been hearing Pastor Rich teach through the design series, talking about our, our places and our roles in the body, our gifting. And um, one of the things that came to mind during that sermon series was that perhaps the body part I represent is the tear duct. Um, and that's okay. It's actually a gift. It's a gift in disguise, though, sometimes. Um, so I hope you're ready, because the tear duct is here. Um, there's pain everywhere we look, right? I, uh, there's pain in my work for sure. Refugees, um, uh, people fleeing in the night from all sorts of destruction and evil on a regular basis. Obviously, all of us are aware of the real-time evil and suffering happening in Ukraine now for over five weeks. Um, it's not just Ukraine, though. It's all sorts of places, but we have access to really... Um, difficult to digest information every time you open your phone and look at a news app. Um, the things that come up, the, the reports of war crimes are overwhelming um, and are really difficult to handle. Um, but there's pain in our world in many forms, right? There's political division, uh, greed, <laughs> deception around every corner, uh, pain in our city. Good grief, the violence in the streets, right? Isn't it sometimes just a little too much? Maybe you, like me, have had uh, the month of March uh, marked by school problems, schools that are falling apart in different ways that are really struggling to cope, um, teachers who need to go on strike to get basic help in their classrooms. We have long-standing problems of racial injustice in our community, uh, community leaders in whom people do not have much trust. And there's pain, of course, in our homes, too. Some of us are facing chronic illness. Others are grieving wayward children who we deeply, deeply long to embrace. There might be fraught relationships in your life, unfulfilled longings, crushed hopes, or perhaps the really practical death of loved ones. There's pain in our church, too. Can I just say that? Can I admit it? If we can't be honest here, where can we be? The church, meant to be God's hands and feet, the witness to the watching world, but oh, how small and messy and disappointing we all can be. There's just so much around us that isn't the way it's supposed to be. If you compare it with Genesis 1, with God's good creation, with him saying that things are meant to be fruitful, and that the way he made this world to be is very, very good. But then I look around with my eyes, and what I see, I... I have to say, the world isn't okay. And often, we're not okay either. Can we admit that? Grief and loss surround us. They're embedded in the human experience. Where is it for you today? Maybe you came today in a moment of crisis personally with bad news just off the presses or the shocking loss of someone you love, a new frightening diagnosis or personal conflict weighing you down. Or maybe you, like me, feel overwhelmed by the evil and suffering in the news. You wonder, why is it that the world looks on with a sense of powerlessness while we hear about violent destruction in Ukraine and so many other places? Maybe there's a recurrent place of pain for you. Many of us have nagging disappointments or doubts that revisit us in different seasons. Unanswered prayers, 
or a place where you just shake your head and wonder, why, Lord? Why did you allow that? Why did you allow that divorce, that abuse, that senseless tragedy? How could any good come from that? When your life experience doesn't match your beliefs or your assumptions about how life should be or even how you expect God to show up in your world, it's normal to experience sadness and doubt and even anger. So what is it for you today? What pain do you come bearing? The question I actually want to ask, though, is what do you do when the pain hits? What is your response when the world around us is falling apart? Our culture offers several um, common responses. One of those is to just um, ignore the pain, try to stuff it down, deny it, kind of like the mess in my closet, hope nobody looks and pretend it isn't there, right? Or maybe we could try overwhelming it with the power of positive thinking. Chin up, turn that frown upside down. Does that work very often? Not always. Or we could try comparing to other people. Well, they have it worse, so really, what do I have to complain about, right? There's lots of methods for trying to ignore and pretend the pain isn't there. And when that doesn't work, because it just doesn't for very long, then often we move on to distracting ourselves, right? Hours of mindless entertainment, perpetual noise, maybe a commitment to consistent overworking, <laughs> the abuse of substances, anything that will work to numb our hearts and minds seems to do. Um, in January, I was on an airplane, and uh, I was seated next to a woman who was tremendously afraid of flying. And I had a lot of sympathy for her because I've been there. I've actually, in the past, been a person who was debilitatingly afraid of airplanes. Ironic with my job. Um, <laughs> really. Um, so I had a lot of sympathy for this woman, um, and I thought, well, Lord, you gave me the person who I need. How can I be a blessing to her as I sat next to this woman who was utterly terrified beside herself. And her story as it came out turns that she had had three beers before she got on the plane that morning at 9.30 as a way of trying to numb the stress, right? Um, then she, that wasn't going to work, so she put headphones in and she blasted this really high-speed music, and she was literally just headbanging the whole way. It was a three-and-a-half-hour flight, by the way, and she did not hold physically still for three and a half hours. She was pounding her feet. She was singing in, along to this music, and she apologized. She said, I'm so sorry, but this is what I've got to do to cope. And I said, it's okay. You're in safe space here. Whatever you need to do, we're good. Um, but then, you know, other people on the plane didn't feel quite as sympathetic as I did. <laughs> and so after a little while, the plane, the flight attendant came to her and knelt down and very kindly said, you know, ma'am, um, the way that you're coping with your stress is really distressing other people. Is there a way that you could maybe, like, tone it down? And um, that didn't go so well. So uh, what did she do? She whipped out her phone and took the third approach that our culture often takes, which is to rage against others. She went, no, no joke, went to Twitter, and an expletive-laden rant started out of her phone as she just vented against the world for their lack of compassion in her moment of pain. <laughs> Do you see yourself? Have you ever tried any of these things? Ignore it, drown it, or, or rage it out. And in the church, there's some who would claim that Christians should only live in a state of perpetual praise, that that's the only Christian posture. But I want to say that many of us struggle to cope, and it's human and it's normal for Christians to struggle. It's normal for you to have sadness, 
to have places of doubt and even places of anger. And it's okay to take the resources God has given us to cope with that. Maybe that looks like counseling or the help of doctors to be able to deal with the things that you're facing in your life. And that is okay. But there's also Christianized dismissal of pain that comes out that makes me very uncomfortable because it's actually a strange version of the pull yourself up by the bootstraps kind of thinking. You know, maybe you've heard it. Well, God must think you're really strong to give you all of those difficult things, right? I see some smiles on your faces. None of you have ever heard that. Um, Or I'm sure things will get better. Don't worry. Joy comes in the morning. Now, I have a daughter named Joy, so I believe that. However, these responses sometimes don't work for very long. Ultimately, they're unsatisfying, and I believe they don't reflect the model given to us in the Bible for how to deal with pain. You see, much like ignoring a serious physical wound, suppressing pain and grief in our hearts only causes things to fester. Psychology and medicine know unhealed emotional pain is a major contributing factor to all sorts of physical illness. Unfaced pain also can lead to spiritual doubt. If you don't numb yourself or you can't because the tragedy is just too much in your face, pain and grief and injustice can challenge your faith at a really core level. In fact, it's a major reason for people walking away from faith altogether, the classic problem of pain. The reality is grief comes out somewhere. It can come out in our bodies, our relationships, our inability to relate well with others or with God. And grief, like all emotions, is normal. It's human. It's actually part of how we were made. The Bible gives us lots of room and examples of people dealing honestly with a whole range of emotion, emotions and, and human experience. Um, Jesus. Let's start with Jesus. Jesus, fully God and fully man, yet without sin. He experienced a full range of emotions. Even those your culture or perhaps your family of origin may have taught you are, are bad ones, bad emotions. Like anger and distress at the stubborn and cold hearts of the Pharisees. He also said he felt compassion for the lostness of the crowds who followed him who were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus felt compassion for people who were hungry. He was concerned about their well-being and their very practical physical needs. Jesus expressed anger at the misuse of God's temple. And when his friend Lazarus died, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And he wept with those who grieved the loss of this dear friend, even knowing resurrection was just around the corner. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, of course, approaching Holy Week, we remember how he was deeply distressed and troubled at the cross. He even said, I'm overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And of course, on the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If Jesus was free to express all of these motions as someone fully human and without sin, then why not us? So I'd invite you to take a journey with me as we think about lament. Lament could be described at the dictionary.com says to feel, show, or express grief, sorrow, or regret. Um, But maybe another way of putting it is a lament uh, from a Christian perspective is a complaint or cry of pain or sorrow directed toward God. This isn't something that's commonly modeled in uh, white North American Christianity, I have to say. But thankfully, we have many examples from the global church that we can call upon. 
Lament is and has been part of the faithful response of Christians living in places where pain is so acute and prolonged that ignoring it is impossible. A really easy example is African-American spirituals. We have a rich tradition of songs that were written by people as a way of holding on to hope in places of almost unbearable pain. Jamar Tisby, who wrote The Color of Compromise, says, the entire church can learn from believers who have suffered and yet still hold on to God's unchanging hand. Black theology can teach the American church not just how to lament, but how to rejoice as well. The exuberant vocal and bodily expressions common in much of black worship represent a faith that celebrates God's goodness in equal measure with lament over humanity's sinfulness. Because those who have suffered much find much joy in God's salvation. After laboring all week under the dehumanizing conditions of slavery, black Christians celebrated on Sunday. They thanked God for giving them life and breath and the full functioning of their faculties. They worshiped God as an outlet for the creativity and vitality that had been suppressed all week. Shouts of amen and hallelujah punctuated every part of the service. I think two of the refugee camps that we work with at IAFR um, were there many, many churches led and populated by people who have fled in the night because of violence, have had to run from home for their lives. One of the things that's common in these uh, refugee-led churches in these camps is that almost everybody participates in choir. I'm sure Devin would be excited to hear that, you know. Everybody gets up and sings, gives you something to do, which is useful when you're sitting around waiting for days, years, decades for some kind of solution. But half of the choir songs that are written there, about half, are laments. And as they spend time together throughout the week writing and then practicing and then singing together, uh, it gives way, a, a way to express that communal ache, the communal cry and groan of pain. Now, they also have a lot of upbeat praise, and they alternate those two. The upbeat, exuberant praise with a more reflective worship that gives um, space at almost every Sunday to some voice of lament. It's like a conversation back and forth between these aspects of their experience, none of which can be denied. When I think about lament, I think about an Afghan pastor that I met in Turkey, who um, his small congregation was suffering deeply, largely because of their faith. Um, they were finding themselves in places where they were denied employment, they went without food, their children were maligned in the schools. They were facing so many tragedies, and it carries on today. And I got to be a witness as he stood there one day, just publicly weeping and calling out to God, begging, Lord, where are you? What do we do? How do we survive? How do we keep watching our kids go through this? He's, he publicly started to weep before God. He went down on his face, and he drenched the floor in the meeting room where we were for probably half an hour of just wailing, guttural pain, crying out and begging God for help, asking God for strength to endure, to continue to be faithful. And about after half an hour, he stood up with this huge smile on his face and broke into joyful praise. And I'm standing there going, what in the world is going on? <laughs> they don't do this where I come from. But it was a beautiful thing. It was actually really a sacred moment to witness the honesty and the trust. And I say, I give you these examples because I think that we have a lot to learn in this area. We have a lot of room for growth in embracing pain 
and also allowing ourselves to embrace the joy that comes behind it. I wonder if sometimes our relative prosperity and comfort have actually um, weakened us in this area, have kept us from learning those muscles about how to engage with pain and our faith in God and hold those two together. Which is why sometimes our pain is easily shaken by painful, our faith is easily shaken, forgive me, by painful events. That I've, it's been interesting to learn as I've spent more and more time with the global church that that's not such a common problem in other places. So let's look at some examples of lament in the Bible. There's many examples and models I could choose from of people confronted by painful realities, pouring out their tears, their anger, and their questions directly to God. Of course, we have all sorts of examples in the prophets. We could think about Habakkuk or Lamentations, all sorts of individual prayers like King Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 20. Um, But also the Psalms, that's the classic place to look because over half of them, friends, over half of them are, are colored by lament. So listen in with me. Like I stood there with that Afghan pastor and got to witness his cries before the Lord. Listen in with me to the cries of people who have come before you. Psalm 31, David says, Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish and my years by groaning. Because of all my enemies, I'm the utter contempt of my neighbors, an object of dread to my closest friends. Those who see me on the street flee from me, and I am forgotten as though I were dead. Oof. Psalm 123, have mercy on us, Lord, have mercy on us, for we have endured no end of contempt. We have endured no end of ridicule from the arrogant, of contempt from the proud. For Psalm 38, again, David speaking, Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Your arrows have pierced me. Your hand has come down on me. Because of your wrath, there is no health in my body. There's no soundness in my bones because of my sin. My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. A lot of the lament psalms focus on the the sense of feeling forgotten by God or God's silence in the face of difficulty. Like Psalm 44 says, You gave us up to be devoured like sheep. You've scattered us among the nations. You sold your people for a pittance, gaining nothing from their sale. Awake, Lord! Why do you slumber? Why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? Psalm 77, will the Lord reject us forever? I hear my Afghan pastor in these words. Will he never show his favor again? Has God forgotten to be merciful? In his anger, has he withheld compassion? Or Psalm 88, perhaps one of the darkest. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and I am in despair. You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. There's other lament psalms that really rage at God in pretty incredible ways, often about his apparent failure to act in the face of injustice. Psalm 74, how long will the enemy mock you, God? Will the foe revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Or Psalm 73, the psalmist reflects, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. 
Their bodies are healthy and strong. And from their callous hearts comes iniquity, and their evil imaginations have no limits. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. Whew. Everybody take a deep breath. That's raw honesty, though, isn't it? It's really raw. And maybe there's something in one of those that I've read that resonates with the pain that you come carrying today. Maybe there's a prayer there that you could borrow, that you could use. I want you to hear really clearly from me that lament is not shameful. It's not a sign of weakness. And actually, it's a really, really bold act of faith. You see, lament is saying that God cares about our pain. We're actually agreeing with God. We're agreeing with him that this is not how it was meant to be, that something has gone terribly wrong. The suffering, the brokenness, the evil, they are not okay. And if we think God doesn't care, or if you don't care about being in relationship with him, why would you bother taking the time to turn to him in the darkness? To turn to him with your pain is declaring that I believe that you care, God. I believe that you hear. Lament also declares that we believe God can handle our emotions. He can handle the fullness of our brokenness and our human experience. Yes, there's a gap often between who I believe God is and what I know his promises to be and what my eyes see. Sometimes the gap feels really big. But I know my perspective is limited, and I know that he is greater. And God knows my weakness. He knows my limitation of perspective, and he's not afraid. He's not threatened by my questions. Lament also declares that God is ultimately the one in control. Turning to God with your most honest and intimate experience of your heart is like a child a toddler running to their parent when they skin their knee, right? Or like an older child who behaves really well at school and then comes home and pitches a fit. And you think, what in the world is going on? Because that kid finally feels safe. They know that they're loved and they can let it all out. Lament is a little bit like that. Taking to God um, the places that are painful because we know, precisely because we know, we are loved and we are safe. Like Peter's answer when others were leaving in response to Jesus' difficult predictions of his suffering, Peter says, where else would I go, Lord? Where else would I go? You're all I've got. That's the spirit of lament. Lament can hold both and thinking together, and that's one of the reasons why I love it. This is painful, and I'm totally dependent on you, Lord. The world is terribly broken, and yet I see signs of your goodness all around me. New babies born, the kindness of strangers, fluffy owl chicks nesting in a tree. These were good signs of God's presence in my week. And yet there's so much pain. So what do I do? How do I hold that complexity together? What does it look like? I think we need to pour it out to God. I want to say that lament is very messy. It's not neat and tidy. It's more like a wrestling match of the heart where your cries of pain and doubt are mixed together with statements of trust and cries for help. 
If you read through the, the fullness of some of those psalms I quoted, you'll see the back and forth that goes on. Often the psalmist will remember the past, remember God's faithfulness, like the song we sang uh, just this morning, and call on God to be faithful to his own promises and character. Usually, lament psalms end with some kind of statement of trust or praise. Not always, but usually. Um, and I think that's really important. Sometimes it's uh, important to spend the time we need in grief, but recognize that by entering in and actually acknowledging the pain, we open the door to greater praise. If you dole one, you dole the other. Dig in to the pain, and you can discover new places of joy. The key idea of lament, though, is just that we bring our full and messy selves and we direct them back to God. Think with me for a minute about the story of Job in the Old Testament. Maybe it's a very familiar territory to you, but let me remind us. Job 1.1 says that Job was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. But then he was put to this test and everything was taken from him. He was a very wealthy man, you see, and he lost in very quick succession all of his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his camels, all of his servants, his seven sons, his three daughters. Eventually, he lost his own health as well. Job's initial response was grief, mixed with worship and submission to God, despite his wife standing there unhelpfully telling him to curse God and die. Job says, but shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Twice the author of Job in the very first chapters there says that in all of this, Job did not sin in what he said. Job is clearly painted as a very righteous and upright man. His friends come to comfort him. They do a pretty good job. They enter into his grief and they sit in silence for a week. Good for them. Yay, friends. And then Job starts to talk and he pours out his broken heart. He says, maybe it would have been better if I had just never been born. And then Job's friends set in with reason, with correction, saying, you know, maybe he's gone a little too far. Eliphaz says, why has your heart carried you away and why do your eyes flash so that you vent your rage against God and pour out such words from your mouth? Back and forth, they protest with Job and argue with each other. 35 chapters of long speeches back and forth trying to justify their points of view. And ultimately, the friends come back to the theme that they're sure that Job must have done something to deserve all of this suffering. And they tell him again and again, he should just repent, and then God will make it all better, and everything will be great. But Job is sure, on the other hand, that he is innocent. And he persists in questioning and accusing God. He demands a hearing from God. He puts God on trial. He says things that make me very uncomfortable. Things that I'm not going to say are necessarily good models for us in all situations. <laughs> but Job is also very honest. He says in chapter 6, verses 2 to 4, If only my anguish could be weighed and all my misery placed on the scales, it would surely outweigh the sand of the seas. No wonder my words have been impetuous. The arrows of the Almighty are in me and my spirit drinks their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. Job says, God stalks me like a lion. 
says in another place, he assails me and tears me in his anger and gnashes his teeth. My opponent, again, he's speaking of God, fastens his eyes on me, his piercing eyes. Job says, it seems like God punishes the innocent. He destroys both the blameless and the wicked, he says in chapter 9. Job says, it feels like God has wronged me. And all I get is silence around here. There's just no justice. Yet mixed in, there's these little moments where Job also expresses some kind of trust in his agony. He acknowledges that only God really can understand and, and have wisdom. And he says things famously that get quoted on mugs in like, you know, Hobby Lobby. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. You know, we ignore the stuff on either side of that statement. Or chapter 19 of Job, he says, I know that my Redeemer or Vindicator lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. I myself will see him with my own eyes. How my heart yearns within me. I love this example of someone who is so desperately honest that while he can accuse God of hurting him, he also longs more than anything to see him face to face. Wow, there's a mix. Eventually, God responds, but without really explaining what's going on. There's actually no easy answers at all in the book of Job. So if that's what you're looking for, maybe not, don't start there. But God puts Job and his friends in their place in a way. He says, you know, what do you know? Your perspective is really limited. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know, God says. And he takes him on a parade through the entire creation of all sorts of things that are way too much for Job to wrap his brain around. Yet in the end, chapter 42, verses 7 and 8, God rebukes the friends, not Job. He rebukes the friends and he says that Job has spoken rightly of him. Twice, mirroring those two statements at the beginning of the book where Job is said to be innocent. Now God is vindicating him. He's saying, actually, Job spoke rightly of me. Wow. In what sense? <laughs> it's a little unclear, I have to say. Um, God never says specifically which part of Job's argument is right. Was it Job's theology? I'm going to say probably not. <laughs> his read of his circumstances? His attitude? A lot of ink has been spilled on this question. One of the most compelling uh, interpretations, I think, is it's Job's relentless wrestling and pursuit of God even when things didn't make sense. Compared with his friends' really simplistic formulas. Some, they had some truth in what they said too, but it was too rigid. It sounded a little more like karma. If you just do the right things and tick the right boxes, God turns into the vending machine and gives you the good stuff, right? And contrasting that, again, Job values connection with God, relationship with God over any earthly blessing. He knows that he doesn't have it all figured it out, figured out. And Job doesn't hold back his pain, but persistently pursues God and declares that God alone is his only hope. There's a model for us. We can think about Jesus, as I mentioned. He experienced the full range of human suffering. And I, I want to conclude today by considering Jesus' words on the cross. He was ridiculed, abused tortured, publicly shamed. And after three hours on the cross in Matthew 27, as well as in the book of Mark, we read, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. 
About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You might know that Jesus is quoting a psalm here, one of those lament psalms, Psalm 22. He's using David's words, which he would have memorized as a child, but not just him, most everyone else who, had been, who was standing there watching would have as well. Psalm 22 starts with deep suffering. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. It talks about circling lions coming to tear him apart. His heart melting and turning to wax. And yet it's mixed, just like all of these lament psalms, with statements of trust, looking to God for help. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One, Lord. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and, and you delivered them. And then it goes back to pain again. But where are you? Why have you left me here? But I think one of the reasons that Jesus quotes Psalm 22 is because it, bringing that first statement brings the whole psalm with it. And behind it at the end, it ends with a picture of global and complete victory for God. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. He rules. And he has done it. Jesus is quoting this psalm saying, no matter what it looks like, friends, this is not the end of the story. On the cross, Jesus acknowledges his pain in visceral ways, even knowing victory was at hand. And he holds that together with trust in God's ultimate redemption and vindication. This is good news for us. This is such good news. You see, at the cross and because of the resurrection of Jesus, which we prepare to celebrate, we are reminded that Jesus carries our pain. He knows our suffering. He knows it. In his body, he knows it. Jesus provides for the forgiveness of our sins. At the cross and the resurrection, Jesus conquers death. And we get reminded again and again that we see that evil and injustice do not get the last word. Praise be to God. So friends, as we conclude today, I'd like to invite you to follow the examples of these people in Scripture. Lean in to the tradition of lament, like Job, like the psalmist, like, like Jesus. Cry out to God in your pain. Bring all of yourself to him. To do so is indeed a very Christian response to pain. So what about you? Do you believe God can handle it? Do you believe he can handle the things that scare others away? <laughs> Be bold in your faith. I invite you to trust God with your pain. He doesn't ask us, and Jesus doesn't model, pretending it's all okay. We have an invitation for you to practice. You may have received as you came in today a, a booklet about lament. It actually has a really easy to fill in chart. Sometimes if this is something outside of your comfort zone, you might need a model to follow. So it uses Psalm 13, one of the shortest lament psalms, as something that you can use to practice putting voice to your pain. We also are going to be having an event in June, which you'll hear more about. It'll be on Sunday, June 12th. 
um, where we'll have the opportunity to practice as a community. What does it look like to trust God with our grief and pain? I hope that you'll be able to join us at that. Lament is an act of faith. Lament says, in this moment, I'm overwhelmed by my pain. I know my perspective, however, is small and severely limited. And Lord, I trust you more than what my eyes can see. Lord, have mercy on us all. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the examples in Scripture of honest, raw faith and of people willing to bring all of themselves to you. I thank you um, that you modeled this for, for us on the cross. That in the midst of our pain, we can also hold that together with a deep trust. With the remembrance that this is not the end of the story. The victory is coming. So Lord, help us as we stand here in the middle, in the shadow lance, to walk faithfully before you in all of these ways. I pray for anyone here today who finds it difficult to come to you with the fullness of their heart and their experience. Lord, would you grant them freedom by your spirit? Would you help them to cry out to you? We look to you as our hope. You have been faithful and you will be again. So would you be with us now, even in the places that are dark? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.